We'll begin by asking you uh, what interested you in medical research. Well, I was always interested in biology, and I decided I wanted to do something useful. And actually, um, I started in genetics, and then I met uh, some cystic fibrosis patients, cystic fibrosis being the uh, most common recessive disease in man. And with my then boss in St Mary's, we went and uh, bled every patient in the country. And I realised what an impact genetic disease has on the population and how dreadful it can be and how uh, courageous the families are. And then I met a Duchenne muscular dystrophy patient and their families and I decided to work on Duchenne muscular dystrophy in the end. And what is human genetic disease? Human genetic disease is a disease that's caused by uh, changes in your DNA sequence which you inherit from your parents. So it isn't... It isn't acquired after you were born, it's actually born with you, like haemophilia. Most people have heard of haemophilia. And that's a defect on the X chromosome, uh, which is what, just one of the chromosomes that's involved in your sex determination. If you are female, you have two X chromosomes. If you're male, you have an X and what's called a Y chromosome. And what are the most common genetic diseases? Uh, well, cystic fibrosis is the most common recessive one. Uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, named after the Frenchman Duchenne who first described it, is actually the most common genetic muscular dystrophy. And what's the difference between recessive diseases and non-recessive? Uh, if uh, something is recessive, it means you have to inherit the mutation from both parents, from both your mother and your father. If it's X-linked, then you generally X-linked recessive, you just inherit it from your mother and you never inherit it from your father and only boys are affected. And that's the case in DMD, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And what happens in DMD? In DMD, uh, you're born normally, actually, so most families don't know they're going to be affected by the disorder. And then you have difficulty climbing upstairs, and it's very progressive. So then you have difficulty running, and then that uh, leg weakness progresses until you go into a wheelchair at about the age of 11 or 12. And then, of course, you start getting weaknesses in the arms and respiratory muscles and your heart. So most patients show abnormal ECGs, indicating abnormal cardiac problems, in uh, about the age of 18. And patients now survive into their 20s, but a lot of them die before their 20s. So it's a, and you know, they're, uh, they can have an active life up till then mentally. Um, so it's a very tragic disease and an enormous burden on their families. How much about the disease do we know? We know what the gene is, we know what the defect is, we know that all of the patients don't have a protein called dystrophin because the lack of it causes dystrophy. So really one of the ways in which you can treat the disease is try and find a way of uh, putting dystrophin back again. But there are an awful lot of, 40% of your body weight is muscle. So uh, it's quite a challenge to get dystrophin back into all muscle, which is what you'd have to do. Have there been attempts to do that? Yes, uh, viruses trying to get viruses to deliver it, but the problem is then, of course, you have an immune reaction to the virus. Some of these patients have mutations which, which cause the machinery not to read the DNA sequence properly, and there is a drug which might uh, compensate for that, make the uh, protein machinery be read properly, um, but that only will affect 6% of patients, so really what we're trying to do is develop a therapy that will be applicable to all patients. And what therapies are currently available? There isn't anything, really, that's effective. There's no effective treatment for DMD, which is why we don't do any prenatal... We do prenatal screening in those cases where we have a previous family history. The problem is there's a very high new mutation rate for this disease, so even if you eradicated the disease through prenatal screening, you'd still come up with spontaneous mutations. 
So what you tragically can get in some families is that you'll get three boys born into the family. The first gets diagnosed aged six, suffering from DND, because that's the time when he first starts having walking difficulties. Meanwhile, his other two brothers have been born and they also have DMD. So what we really want is an effective treatment so that we could say to families once a first is born, because we've already done the screening, that uh, we have a treatment, but obviously if you want to have prenatal diagnosis to avoid further affected pregnancies, we can offer it to you. And the alternative is to screen every pregnancy, and we simply don't have the, uh, the means of doing that at the moment. And how many people have DMD, approximately? Well, there are about 50 children born each year, so I suppose there must be 100, 150 people in this country, DMD boys. It's one in 3,000. So it's relatively rare. I mean, it's not like cancer or heart disease, but the impact is huge. Then it's you know it'd be great if we could actually eradicate it or come out with an effective treatment. What research are you currently doing into it? Well, we've uh, we discovered in 1989 a protein called eutrophin as opposed to dystrophin, which is the protein that's missing. And we call it eutrophin because it's expressed everywhere, so it's ubiquitously expressed. Um, but uh, it's very similar to dystrophin. And in fact, in early human fetal life, eutrophin is there in the muscle and dystrophin isn't. And as your muscles mature, and when you're born. Eutrophin is only then expressed in very small amounts in muscle, and dystrophin is expressed at very high levels relative to eutrophin. So since nature early on uses eutrophin instead of dystrophin, our idea would be that if you could increase the levels of eutrophin, you would replace the necessity for dystrophin. And in uh, animal models, we man managed to prove that that indeed is the case. You can cure the MDX mouse by increasing its levels of eutrophin. Would you only have to do that at one point? Uh, I suspect you'd have to do it in several points over your lifetime, but you wouldn't have to do it continuously. So it wouldn't be the same as having to burn the dystrophin? The reason the approach of increasing the levels of eutrophin is attractive is you don't have to deliver it with a virus. You could potentially use a small drug, a pharmacological drug, which you could take orally, which might increase your eutrophin in all of your cells for that matter, but it probably wouldn't matter. But the important thing is it would increase them in all your muscles, if you increase eutrophin, would then lead to an effective treatment. When do you anticipate this being possible? Well, um, we collaborated with a biotechnology company called Summit PLC, and they're going to start trials in collaboration with Bimaran, another pharmaceutical company, next year, because we have found one drug that does increase the levels by a small amount. And if we could show that that really did have an effect in man, as opposed to just in uh, an animal model, then uh, we'd be in good shape to try and perfect that model uh, to, to get really an effective treatment. So we're quite excited at this stage that we may have something that's coming through. And aside from DMD, what other areas of research? I'm interested in movement disorders generally. So what we have been looking at are animal models of, um, of movement disorders. So um, there are repositories where mutant mice are kept, and what we've been doing is screening those and so we've got uh, a very good model for uh, a gene that's involved in behavioural disorder, um, which is also a gene that's very similar to um, one of the genes that we know is involved in mental impairment. So we're using, we're looking at those genes and their function now um, in much more detail. We've also got uh, another mouse that came out of that particular screening programme that will give us some interesting clues, I think, for Parkinson's and schizophrenia and manic depression. So we're very excited about those results. And this is in your functional genomics unit? Yes. 
Yes. What is a functional gene? Functional genomics unit is a unit which is set up where we look at the genome, that is your whole DNA sequence, uh, find interesting sequences that might be involved in neurological diseases like Parkinson's, movement disorders, motor neuron disease, etc. And then look at the function of those genes. You want to do the minimum number of mouse experiments uh, anyway, but and in addition to that, doing experiments in the mouse is expensive. So if you have an idea that a gene sequence is going to be involved in a neurological disease, you want to look at it in worms and flies and fish first, so that A, because you can do it very cheaply, and B, because you can do it very rapidly. Then you can develop your preclinical model where you might develop your drug in a higher organism like the mouse in a minimal way. And then you can come back and say, well, if I've proved the pathway, now I need to find a drug which will interact with that pathway that might be an effective treatment for the disease. And again, there are lots of new me methods now where you can use fish, flies and worms to do rapid drug screening. So we're looking at comparative genomics, that is looking at the DNA sequence in flies and worms and, and other organisms to see whether what genes are different and what genes are the same, and there are an amazing number that are the same, which is why we can use worms as a model for human disease, even Alzheimer's actually, we can similar pathways. Um, and then we can take it all the way up to the drug screen at, in other parts of the, of the unit. How does one find these pathways? Um, usually by having a mutation. In, so you'll get a, a phenotype, you'll get a worm that doesn't move very well, or a fish that doesn't move very well. Um, and then you can easily map, using genetic tricks, you can identify that, what, what that gene is. Alternatively, there's a lot of um, association studies going on around the world now, identifying gene sequences in human populations that are associated with all sorts of diseases, cancer, diabetes, uh, schizophrenia, autism, uh, and those candidate genes come up. Chris Ponting in the unit will look at uh, the function of those genes by going back in evolution right back to bacteria in some cases and asking the question what did these genes or parts of these genes do uh, in uh, early on in evolution that gives us very important clues to their function and then we can move up and test that hypothesis by making mutations in those genes to see whether those pathways are affected and what is our level of understanding of that at the moment in neurological disease it's fairly uh, primitive because we haven't identified enough genes so far but each one of those new genes that are identified by looking at uh, human disease populations identifies a new pathway. So even though that, that isn't a druggable sequence, isn't a protein that we can easily identify as a target for a drug, we then can see how it, uh, what pathways it's involved in in the cell by looking at all of the expression data. So in a neurological disease like Parkinson's, mm -hmm. there could be many different pathways that Absolutely. Disease. Yes, um, that's. I mean, that is actually one of the advantages of Parkinson's and one of the disadvantages, and that is there are multiple effects, and the question is you've got to treat all of those effects. But maybe one is more dominant than the others, and maybe more important, and so you can test all of those. So it won't be caused by a single gene. Um, some some forms of Parkinson's are, as indeed are some forms of Alzheimer's, but some are formed by the interaction of more than one gene and most complex diseases, including cancer, tend to be mutations in more than one gene. It's just a sequence of events, which is why they're late onset. And that, I, that, I presume, is why it's difficult to treat with drugs? Uh, yes, or at least difficult to treat with one drug. So in a lot of these diseases, though, you might be able to slow down the effect. If you knew what the pathway was, uh, so you knew what was causing the cell death, 
uh, you might be able to slow down that cell death pathway. So you wouldn't cure the disease, but you'd hold it off until eventually you drop down dead. The idea is everybody has to live for a long time and drop down dead um, when you know everything gives over, and that's possible. So it's it's a question of increasing the quality of life, really, and finding drugs that will do that. I mean, motor neuron disease is increasing the population, the population ages. There may be a hundred or so genes that are involved in that disease. Each one, each gene is different in each patient. But if there's a common pathway to motor neuron death, then we can say, okay, is there something that we can use that will prevent that motor neuron death or at least slow down the progress of those motor neurons into that death process? And that way we'll have uh, an effective treatment. Won't last forever, but will probably last for 10 or 20 years, which is enough for you to live to your 90 uh, reasonably healthily. If one manages to develop these treatments, will the disease mutate? That's a very good question because uh, some genes which are not inherited, you acquire those mutations by an environmental insult. I mean, DNA radi- radiation is one of those. Radiation damage is an environmental insult. It may be by uh, eating certain foods. I mean, there's all sorts of pollutants in the environment that might cause mutations. So that's a possibility, yes. And what causes most genetic diseases? Is it inherited or these environmental? Most of it's inherited. And most of those mutations are just a consequence of uh, errors in the, in the cellular machinery. Um, if you think of the billions of sequences of DNA, each one of those has got to be copied faithfully each time a cell divides. It's not surprising that occasionally there's a mistake. And of course the cell will detect most of those and repair them. But every now and again it doesn't. Are there possibilities in exploring genetics for decreasing the likelihood of those mutations occurring at the the beginning? Uh, Theoretically, yes, but unlikely, I think, because there are lots of ways in which you can generate mutations. Just The cellular machinery getting it wrong is one. Environmental insults of all sorts of types is another, and I'm not sure you could ever stop that. So a typical experiment that you're conducting, how would that go? Um, Well, we probably take um, some patient cells, for example, Um, from a muscular dystrophy patient and uh, look to see uh, whether we could correct the defect by a particular method, either increasing levels of eutrophin or uh, trying to change the sequence back to what it should be. In certain situations you can try and do that. What happens in some patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and this is another aspect that we're looking at, is the, the gene is divided into little pieces and each of those little pieces is called an exon. And what happens in some DMD patients, they have some of those pieces missing. And then the protein is not made properly. What we can do is cause, uh, using a drug again, we can think about inducing the cell to read that properly by missing out another exon or another two exons. It makes the reading frame, we call it, uh, read properly again. So it just misses out a few words, but you can still get the sense. It's like a sentence. Uh, and if we can do that, then the, the patient will produce a slightly smaller protein because there'll be bits missing, but essentially it'll be the same. It's a bit like taking a chapter out of a book. It's not really relevant. That was the boring chapter. Uh, but you can still read the rest of the book. And that's the sort of thing we're trying to do with DMD. Has any of your research had direct clinical application already? Uh, no. So the closest we've got is to try and develop this new treatment for DMD. 
And what kind of time scale are you anticipating? Well, it's rather difficult because you don't... Well, it's going to be at least five years, if not longer, because it just takes that long to go through all the safety procedures, uh, optimise the drug, then go back into trials, and then uh, get it approved by all the regulatory authorities. And what ethical considerations have you encountered? Well, uh, the ethical considerations in DMD... It's interesting, because when we, in 1980 we developed the first prenatal diagnosis of the disease, well, together with collaborators in Holland and America. And at that stage, uh, a lot of families aborted all males because they didn't want any risk of muscular dystrophy at all. And it was very easy for us to justify introducing prenatal diagnosis, even in Catholic families or families that objected to prenatal diagnosis, because they could see they were saving 50% of the normal males. Um, so we did have to go through ethical permission. I think it's such a terrible disease that most families, not all, but most families would opt for prenatal diagnosis. So there were major ethical issues. I think the ethical issues now are, if you want to have an effective treatment, you've got to get in before all the muscle uh, disappears. So how early is it ethical to do a clinical trial? Can we do it at a seven-year-old patient, or should we be doing it at where we can have age of consent at 16 or age 12? So the initial clinical trials have been do, done on patients aged you know, 9, 11, 12, that sort of age. But the problem is the disease has already pretty much progressed by then. So it's quite difficult then to measure a good outcome. But we're trying, we're learning all the time about how the best way to get the balance right between not damaging the patient, obviously, but having to do an effective trial. Do you have people who are reluctant to participate because of the fears of any alterations in genetics? No. And I think that's because the disease is so, is so awful we, that people are queuing up for, for the treatment. In fact, they, they don't understand why the regulatory authorities are stopping them from having the treatment uh, because they're very, they're, you know, their disease is progressing all the time, so they want absolutely any chance of, of having that at least postponed. So really, it's up to the regulatory authorities to say we've got to do this experiment properly for the good for the long-term future of the field we've got to do a proper clinical trial so that we can measure the right outcomes so we can treat and develop the best possible drug. How supportive have the regulatory authorities been? Uh, very. I mean they have made special rules for what they call orphan diseases that is diseases that are not present at very high levels in the population and therefore the big pharmaceutical industry won't necessarily back it. And so they've tried to, and particularly if it's a devastating disease like DMD, they make every attempt to fast-track uh, applications for those protocols. And by fast-track, I don't mean bypass the safety regulations. I mean just help us put, uh, formulate it to get it right first time so that we can get it to the clinic as fast as possible. So there's been a lot of co cooperation. Given that there are relatively few people uh, with the disease, as you said, is it difficult to get funding? Um, there are a lot of very effective charities around the world uh, that raise money for this disease, a lot of that driven by the patients' families themselves. And in addition to that, because everything we've learned about muscular dystrophy, I mean, prenatal diagnosis of muscular dystrophy was one of the first ones that was done on the basis of DNA tests uh, 20 years ago now, more than 20 years. And that, that was the paradigm that set the scene for more common diseases, um, how to do gene therapy. Um, which you can do for uh, using viruses in some diseases now. It doesn't work too well for DMD, but it was, it was really piloted 
in DMD. So we, we learn a lot about how to approach other genetic diseases by looking at these rare diseases. And you spoke about gene therapy. Could you explain what that is? Gene therapy is where you use gene. Where you've got a mistake in, in your genetics and you replace the gene that is uh, mutated. For example, there's a, perhaps the most promising area where in genetic disease, it's not quite genetic, but it's gene defect, is where you get um, eye diseases, macular degeneration, so you gradually go blind in adulthood. If you could replace genes that interfered with that pathway into the eye, then you might be able to avoid macular degeneration. And that's one avenue that's being pursued, not by my group, but by other groups around the world. And that's what gene therapy is. It's using genes to change the properties of certain cells, either replacing a gene or just making it do something else. Okay. Well, you've also established the Centre of Gene Function. Yes. I established that with a physiologist and a statistician, with Fran Ashcroft and Peter Donnelly, because, um, as I ex explained a little earlier, the, uh, the whole concept of looking at genes, you look at it at the population level, you look to see how genes are inherited, who's susceptible to what disease, who's susceptible to Crohn's disease, cancer or heart disease, that's like an easy one, who's susceptible to heart disease, by looking at the population level. And that's the sort of thing that Peter Donnelly does. He then tells me that there might be 30 genes that are involved in this, and I, as the geneticist, look for mutations in different organisms and see whether those really are involved in heart disease. Then I have to look at the function, you know, what, what makes a cell uh, function in that way, and that requires physiology, which is where Fran Ashcroft comes in. She's particularly interested in potassium channels and diabetes. So it, we need the whole, we need everything from the single gene all the way through to the whole system, where we're looking at function. And so Oxford Centre for Gene Function was founded on the premise that we'd have scientists interacting with each other in that way, looking at a whole series of different diseases. And by putting them all together in one building, we'd uh, increase the uh, interaction and make the field move along faster. What level of multidisciplinary cooperation is there? A lot. In fact, the future today of science is really in multidisciplinary working. You can't use a microscope these days without uh, the really good imaging comes from a combination of the physicists working with the biologist. The development of the drug has always depended on the chemist, but the fast screening now depends on a partnership between the chemist and the biologist. Uh, so it's everywhere. And of course, ultimately, you have to have uh, collaboration with the clinician, otherwise you never get it to the clinic. So that, that brings us on to ask, what are you hoping to be the next major development in your area? Um, I would hope that we find some really good models for schizophrenia, autism and manic depression. Actually. I mean, I'm hoping we'll cure muscular dystrophy, but you know, we're turning the wheel on that one. But I think uh, if we can identify some of the important pathways with the new genetics that's coming out in, in uh, psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia, well, I'd hope that in the next 10 years we'll see a lot of advance there. Do we know much about uh, genetics? in psychiatric disorder? Uh, we do. There are occasionally very rare examples of a disease um, phenotype where someone, a patient suffers from schizophrenia and have a mutation in one gene. But that's extremely rare. Most of the time it'll be several genes that are involved. So we've got some clues, but they aren't very big clues. So there's a lot to find out.